Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit why I'm so passionate about this topic. In order to understand that, you need to visit with me the church that I was raised in. This, and it's nowhere around here, so it may sound familiar to some of you, because I know some of you were raised in similar churches, but this church that I was raised in was really, really concerned about certain things, like whether men's hair touched the top of their ears, whether women's skirts came, were shorter than two inches above their knee. They were concerned with whether people were seeing movies and doing otherworldly things. Our pastor actually sometimes would sit in the parking lot outside the movie theater when it was letting out to see if any of his people were caught. He actually caught my sixth grade Sunday school teacher coming out of the movies. <clears throat> Heathen. We heard sermons on why women shouldn't wear pants. We had a lot of debate around which version of the Bible was the correct one. And of course in this church, the King James Version with all of these and nows was the only one. They said, after all, if it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. They actually handed out a list one time of words that maybe you didn't know were swear words, but really were. One of them was Jiminy Cricket. Had to be very, very, very careful about saying Jiminy Cricket. Mickey Mouse was okay, Jiminy Cricket was not. What happens in this kind of environment is that you become very territorial. And so when other churches seem to be having good stuff going on, or when new churches popped up anywhere around, there was this freak-out factor. And we had to label them and call them names and, and be sure that these were not true people who were following Jesus. And so we would call them things like liberal, those liberals. Or we would say they're neo-evangelicals. I think I knew what that word was when I was like five. Neo-evangelical, very bad thing. And the favorite one was to label people and groups and events ecumenical. Now, if you know what ecumenical means, it kind of just means that different groups are going to be partnering together. So an ecumenical youth conference would mean that there might be Lutheran churches and Baptist and Catholic churches all present. And that would be ecumenical, and that would be bad. I'm not sure what's going to happen in heaven, because I'm thinking that's ecumenical. But at least here on earth, we cannot be ecumenical. <laughs> and we felt like we were in charge of determining who was going to go to heaven and who was not. And I was very confused by this, because what it seemed, and I don't think they ever preached this, but it seemed like there weren't going to be any Catholics or Lutherans or Presbyterians or Methodists in heaven. Just us. It was going to be a very small place. <laughs> and you know, it didn't seem like good news, really. You know, the gospel, gospel means good news. And is it really good news if 99.9% .9 of the people on the planet are going to hell? And our, us little group, our little group, our sad and sorry little group who didn't say Jiminy Cricket, we were going to be the ones who made it in. Even as a child, this did not seem like good news to me. And it seems today like even worse news. In fact, I don't even feel sometimes like that's the same religion that I'm a part of. And I'm sure God has brought them along. But the truth today is that at Woodland Hills, we want to be a place that loves things that are ecumenical. Amen. Because God's kingdom is ecumenical. So I'm going to give you a little math lesson this morning. Now, I'm really, 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 really bad at math, so I'm going to kind of skim through the math part, and then we'll jump into the, how it applies to the church. And if any of you teach math, just put your fingers in your ears for a couple seconds here. The church that I grew up in, we would call maybe a bounded set. A bounded set in math would be a set where all of the contents are defined by their boundaries. Whereas a centered set, everything in the set is defined by its relationship to whatever is at the center. That's the math part. I'm done with it. Let's talk about the church. So what happens in a church when you're going to be bounded set? 
You have to stand around the boundaries and you have to say things like, you have to sign this 27-page single-spaced actual statement to be a part of our group. And we're not going to partner with anyone else who doesn't have a similar 27-page single-spaced actual statement. The only people who are going to have it are the people who have this 27-page single-spaced actual statement. And everybody stands around the boundaries and makes sure that if anybody errs in any one of the 300,000 points in the doctrinal statement, is kept out. Or you might say, we're not even going to partner with any other people with a 27-page single-space doctrinal statement. Because those people are out to steal our sheep. The kingdom is a competition. And if your church starts down the road from mine, you're going to steal our sheep. There's not enough to go around, right? Whereas at Woodland Hills, we long to be a centered set. Now, what do you think, using the math analogy, what might be at the center of a centered set in the kingdom? Jesus! Don't you love it when it's the Sunday school answer? <laughs> Jesus is at the center of the centered set. And all around him are people and churches and denominations and organizations who long to be with him, to build their lives around him. And the people in this set don't have time to go and guard the boundaries. And they don't have time for 27-page single-space doctrinal statements. Because Jesus is at the center. And you know what? Jesus is moving. This is a moving centered set. And a lot of churches, I think, put, try to put Jesus at the middle, and then they all sit around staring at him, waiting for him to return. And the fact is, he's here, he's empowering us, and he's moving. Yeah. And if we want to advance his kingdom, we need to keep him at the center. We need to move with him. And we want to move with everyone who has also decided to move with Jesus. A great wise man once said, a community is as healthy as it is centered on the center and as unhealthy as it is fixated on the boundaries. A community is as healthy as it is centered on the center and as unhealthy as it is fixated on the boundaries. And this is the church I was raised in. It was not good news. It did not feel like the kingdom. And the great wise man who said that is, of course, our own Greg Boyd. <laughs> the great atheist Bertrand Russell said this, collective fear stimulates herd instinct and tends to produce ferocity toward those who are not regarded as members of the herd. There's a herd instinct that produces ferocity toward those who are not regarded as members of the herd. See, it was very important in this church to label certain people as outside, which was just about everybody, and then those of us inside who had the real truth. Because we were afraid. We were afraid of those people who spoke in tongues. And we were afraid of those people who had different visions of God who experienced the spirit, who had different views of God's foreknowledge, maybe. But really, the church that Jesus Christ founded was founded on love. And he says, perfect love casts out fear. So I'm not sure. Somewhere along the way, we got a little bit of afraid, and we got territorial, we got concerned about doctrine a lot. And we started operating out of fear instead of out of love. And fear is not compelling. Fear is not good news. And when people bump into that, they aren't compelled and enticed and drawn toward Jesus. They're repelled and pushed away. The kingdom is not a zero-sum game. If 14 more churches start in St. Paul within two miles of here, there are still enough people to go around. Yeah. Interestingly, 20 years after my experience in my growing up church, I showed up here at Woodland Hills, and I found Greg Boyd in the visitor's room, and he was saying things to people. I visited there a few times, and every time I went in there, he was saying things to people like, 
Well, you know what? There's a really good singles ministry up at North Heights Lutheran Church, and you should go up there. You need to visit there. Or there's this great pastor across town that I really think addresses the need that you're looking for. Here's his phone number. Or you know what? You're driving an hour to get here. Let me tell you about a church up in Forest Lake that's a little bit closer to you. And I'm like, this guy is insane. Doesn't he know these people are going to bring resources? We can't function without resources? See, Greg doesn't have the vision that if people go somewhere else, we're going to lose all our people, we won't have any money, we have to close our doors. Because he knows there's more than enough people to go around. The church I was on staff at in Michigan was a church planting church. We planted about 10 churches. And we decided a couple years ago to plant a church about 30 miles west of our church in the Detroit area. The the denomination we were a part of got really upset because they already had a church in that area. They had a church of 100 people in an area with 500,000 people. And everybody got afraid. See, this is my territory. Stay away. I don't think 100 people can love a half a million people effectively. I think they needed a lot more churches to reach those people. But when we get fearful, when we think we have to guard the boundaries, our territory, be concerned about doctrine, read the Bible like it's an encyclopedia and make sure everybody's crossed their T's and dot their I's, then we can't partner with other expressions of the body of Christ. But if we put Jesus at the center of our set and move with him, if we let him worry about the boundaries and let him worry about who's in and who's out, then we are freed up to love and to partner. We can even partner with Federal Express to reach Ames Elementary School. We don't have to be concerned about our territory. And this is the vision of Woodland Hills Church. The fears that always drive church politics, fears of doctrine, fears of territory, and fears of power are not going to be manifested here at Woodland Hills Church. And those three things, doctrine, territory, and power, throughout church history are pretty much the things that have turned the kingdom in the wrong direction, that have got the church confused about what we're really about. So, Paul. If we, you're being really quiet over there, I think you need to tell us, if we want to be a church that's centered around Jesus and moving with him, you need to tell us what his vision for the church is supposed to be. Well, Sandra. All right. Good I'm glad you asked that question. I was beginning to wonder what I was doing sitting up here. So was I. Jesus' vision for the church, I think it's as simple as it is profound and beautiful. Three parts, as I see it. Interesting to notice Jesus never mentions the word church, ecclesia in the Greek, for a long time in his ministry. According to the Gospels, it's only mentioned twice, and the first time Jesus mentions it is at that turning point in his ministry when he's about to head to Jerusalem for the final time, when he's going to the cross. Only then does he mention the church, and at this particular moment, Matthew 16, he gathers his 12 around him, he looks into their eyes, and he asks the simple question, who are people saying that I am? Because these men, at least, have made Jesus the center. But Jesus knows there's a lot of things you can put at the center. Uh, maybe you can put a uh, five-foot-something Galilean carpenter who has an interesting message at the center. Some did. But when Jesus asked his 12 that day, Peter had this response. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Not some uh, Galilean prophet, not just a Galilean prophet, but the incarnate Son of God come down The center is the center of the universe. This is our center. And Jesus then says, only then, says, upon this rock I will build my church. The rock of the realization, the confession, 
that he is the living Messiah, Son of God. And it's upon that rock that he's built his church now for 2,000 years. Anyone who recognizes his identity becomes a piece of this church, this ecclesia. The word simply means gathering. Jesus is gathering all those who recognize who he truly is. So, first part of the vision. Those who realize Jesus, the living Son of God, is at the center. Secondly, and without skipping a beat, Jesus then goes on and says this next phrase, and the gates of hell, the very gates of Hades, the citadel of the kingdom of darkness cannot stand against my church. He immediately goes to warfare language. He, he envisions, I think, a spiritual army that's going to be so effective, so centered on him, that it moves through this world, tearing out hell, tearing down walls, breaking apart divisions everywhere it sees in the name of love. It's a warfare mentality. And although, uh, maybe for recruiting purposes, I know the most recent slogan for army recruiting purposes is an army of one. And that might get some people to sign up. But I'm guessing about 30 seconds after boot camp starts, people realize it's not their army. Some other general's running this army. Any general knows if an army is going to be effective, it cannot be an army of many. It's an army of one, a unified force with one general moving in one direction. And Jesus knows that too. He's got to be the center. It's got to be a centered set. If he is going to draw his people around himself and advance his kingdom against the kingdom of darkness in this world. But finally, for that to ever happen, there's got to be a third piece to this vision. And Jesus shares this, recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's the final lengthy prayer recorded in John before Jesus goes to the cross. And he says this, Father, I pray that they, his followers, his people, may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, so that they may be one just like we are one. Triune love relationship, Father, let them be that. I and them, and you and me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know that you did send me. Could Jesus have been any more clearly redundant? Father, here's the, it's a, it's a fail-safe plan if they just do it. Father, you're in me. Let me get in them, they'll have my spirit, and let them be one, just like we are one, the same way the triune love relationship, the, the dance of the Trinity has, has loved for eternity. Let my people love like that, so that the world will be drawn to them. Because here's the one thing Jesus knows for certain. Every living, breathing human being is hungry for unconditional love. They need it. They're sucking life everywhere for it and never getting it. And this could be the place a church that loves like the Trinity, they're going to be coming in. They're going to be hungry for it. They will know that Jesus was who he said he was. And the whole rest of the New Testament takes this three-part vision. Jesus at center, advancing the kingdom in a unity of love, and uses a lot of metaphors to get us thinking in this direction. A lot of word pictures. For example, one shepherd with a unified flock around him. One cornerstone laid for the foundation of a living temple that God is building up, composed not of bricks, but of living people, a living temple unto God. One groom, Jesus Christ, in search of a bride. Not in search of many brides, 
Jesus is not a polygamist, amen? He's not into the harem thing. He wants one bride, a unified bride where all the members of his body come together and are waiting that wedding night in his return. But some of us aren't married, some of us aren't stonemasons, and some of us haven't ever led a flock of sheep. Some of those analogies we can't particularly maybe relate to, but here's a final one we all can. Every one of us have a body. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about Jesus' followers as a body, a human body, pieces knitted together, cells, organs, all coming together, the ligaments holding it together, the spirit flowing through them like life-giving blood. There's an image, a unified, harmonious body. Because we know when our body's working properly, when our cells aren't serving themselves but are serving the body, when they're functioning in their organs the way they should, when the organs are systematically working together, we have a healthy, active body. But all it takes is one cell to decide that its survival and its growth is more important than the body. And we have what we call cancer. All it takes is self-orientation of a cell or an organ, and the whole body begins to deteriorate. In the physical world, so is it the case in the spiritual realm. A single Christian self-oriented, destructive, can take down a church. And various organs fighting against each other in the body can begin to make the body of Christ look like a dying corpse. And we are called to a different vision, a unified, healthy, whole body in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Sandra. What, Paul? Well, we've had 2,000 years of Jesus casting this vision and the church having the opportunity to buy into it, to grab a hold of it, and to move with it. How's it gone? Well, we've got good news and bad news. We've got cancer cells and healthy cells. Let's talk about the cancer cells first, right? I'd like to get the bad news. Bad news out of the way. Okay, good. How many words do you think it took to cause the largest church split in history? One word. The word is filioque. In the Nicene Creed, it talks about, it used to talk about, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. And that was fine with the Eastern Church. But in about the 9th century, the Western Church decided that that didn't really work. And so they added the words filioque, which is, and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, this may not sound like a big deal to us today, but this was a big deal to them back then. The Eastern Church thought it was heretical. How can there be two sources of being? There's just one, that's the Father. But the Western Church was concerned that the Son and Spirit needed to be adequately distinguished from one another, yet still related. And so the battle raged on for a couple of hundred years until finally in 1054, the Eastern Church split from the Western Church. And today when you see the Eastern Orthodox churches here, that's the Eastern Church. That's the result of the split. And there's not a lot of talk between the two. In fact, this debate about and the Son continues today. And I talked at the beginning about how there were doctrinal, power, and territorial problems in the church, how there were and how there are. And this would be an example of a doctrinal boundary where the two sides decided they couldn't learn to work together, they couldn't agree to disagree. This was a big enough deal where they're just going to split the body of Christ in half. The year was 1517. Martin Luther grabbed his hammer out of his toolbox and nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door and began what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. A lot of good things came out of that. The church reformed. The church tried to get back to the roots of Jesus Christ in a lot of ways. 
And yet, a lot of not-so-positive things evolved out of that as well. Within a couple of decades, there were not only Catholics and Lutherans now, but Calvinists and Baptists, a lot of different distinctive groups with a lot of doctrinal differences. But not just doctrinal difference. In this day of age, in the 1500s and the 1600s, every German and French and Spanish prince or king was allowed the opportunity to decide what their subjects would be. You were told by your governing ruler what you would be, Catholic, Baptist, etc. Well, in 1572, the war has started. Picture here, you may have seen this before, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, 1572. In that year, a series of massacres started in which the Catholic Church, in attempt to take back ground, losing from the Protestants, slaughtered over 6,000 Calvinists in a matter of months. Come 1618, and now the horrendous moment when the Thirty Years' War started, three solid decades of kill Catholics kill killing Calvinists, fighting Lutherans, attacking Anabaptists, when all was said and done, the country of Germany, which ser served as basically the, the military theater for this campaign, had reduced its population from 16 million to 6 million. Two-thirds reduction of killing and slaughtering and massacre, all in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of the one true church. The only thing that saved this war, that finally brought it to the end, was the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, a largely secular movement in which people were saying, if this is what Christianity is about, We've got to stop this. We've got to move away from a religious sort of orientation in life. 1527, Michael Sattler, an Anabaptist, out of which tradition our Baptist churches arose, was burned as an arch-heretic by the church because he held different beliefs. He had left the monastery and got married. That was a problem for them. He also argued that being baptized as an infant does not save one for eternity that something else needs to happen as an adult. And, and this is the big one, he practiced placing the body, the bread and the wine of communion on a plate and eating off a plate. This was a big problem. There were a lot of other doctrinal differences, and ultimately they decided that he had to be killed for his faith, for his beliefs, for his heresy. And so they had to torture him a little bit first. They cut out his tongue. They pulled pieces of his flesh off with hot tongs, and then they finally burned him to death. And then all of his followers were either drowned or burned to death as well. In the 17th century, Pascal said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Men never do evil so cheerfully as when it's done from religious conviction. And what we find is a lot of the martyrs that we celebrate today were martyred not by pagans, not by those who didn't follow Christ, but by those who followed Christ but had differences of opinion or who had power issues. And this example here of the church killing Michael Sattler is an example of the church having the political power and the clout to make decisions about who lived and who died and what you had to believe and what you couldn't believe. And so they used that power to put Michael Sattler to death in the name of Jesus. Well, that's the cancer cells that we've seen through church history in the body of Christ. But there's also good news. Take it away, Paul. There is good news. For every moment of misused power and territorialism and doctrinal conflict gone awry, there's moments, glimpses of the vision that Jesus had. We're just going to share three with you. One from a doctrinal 
perspective, one from a territorial and one from a power perspective. Doctrinally speaking, let me preface it by putting it in context. Some of you know that our pastor has uh, our humble, lovable, gentle, warm-hearted senior pastor, Greg Boyd. That would be this man right here. <laughs> Doesn't get much humbler than that. He's got a lot more hair. A lot more hair, yeah. <laughs> has been involved in a bit of a controversy the last few years, a doctrinal controversy. And quite frankly, some people, theologically speaking, don't see Greg quite this humble and gentle. They maybe see him more like, like this, I think. Um, did you do that? I didn't. I, our little secret, all right? Greg doesn't have to know about this. Okay. But this doctrinal controversy Greg's found himself in really has a long history. If we're honest, it's a modified form of the Calvinist-Arminian debate that's been going on in some way or shape or form for 1,500 years. just want to mention one moment in that debate. It's from the 18, 18th century. Two gentlemen two significant figures in Christian life of that century. On the left, John Wesley. On the right, George Whitfield. Between these two gentlemen, they revolutionized England in that century, brought revival. Actually, both of them came to America and started revival fires here as well. They were both used powerfully by God to build his kingdom in that century. And yet, they were sharply divided on this question of how precisely doctrinally God saves people. And it was a, a thing that, for their decades-long friendship, was always a tension point with them. And at times, at times, they didn't speak to each other. But what they did is they committed, eventually, to pushing through on their friendship. They said, although they never changed their, their views on this, and to the day they died, disagreed with each other on this point, they decided to let love bind their friendship and be stronger than the doctrinal difference. And as Whitfield was dying, he asked Wesley if he would preach his sermon at his funeral, which Wesley did. And the day that he died and the funeral service was over, someone came up to Wesley, knowing this hot debate point they'd had all their lives, and he said, do you think you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? And Wesley said, you know, I don't think I will. So I think Whitfield will be so much closer to the throne of Jesus than I will that the light will be too blinding and I won't be able to see him because of that. Friendship and love won out of our doctrinal difference that day. I think we need a little dose of that today, maybe. In the second and third century, a third to a half of the population was killed by the plague. And this was probably smallpox and measles. And every family was touched by it. People were dropping down like flies. And what was happening in the pagan households was they were taking family members who weren't even dead yet and throwing them out in the street and isolating themselves because people were so afraid that they were going to catch the plague and die from it. And what we found in the Christian households was that not only were they nursing their own family members and other Christians back to health, but they were reaching beyond their boundaries, beyond their own territory, and reaching across to people of different faiths and people who are pagans and nursing them back to health in spite of the risk to themselves. They were willing to reach past the territory that said, no, this is my set of people, and reach out in the love of Jesus and in his name and heal those who are dying of the plague. And the final story is one we don't even have a picture for because actually Greg just brought us word of it last week in his return from uh, Cambodia. Background is that for some years, for some decades now, with the influx of Vietnamese refugees into Cambodia from the Vietnam War, fleeing communism, 
There's become quite a sizable refugee population in Cambodia of, of Vietnamese people. And there have become a very severe ethnic strain there. Uh, not just tensions, but it's opened up into outright violence and persecution over the years. It has even touched the church so that the Vietnamese church and the Khmer church of Cambodia have not been exactly reconciled, we could say. And yet, as Greg was over there, he was involved in discussions and hearing about recent discussions that for the first time have signaled a breakthrough in relationship, the two churches beginning to partner together. This is a significant move because what it means is the Khmer Cambodian church is obviously the church in power here. The Vietnamese church is a refugee population. Not only are they sharing their power, but they are actually taking a risk by which they could be disadvantaged in, in the eyes of their government for actually partnering with the Vietnamese, and that's, that's precisely what they're doing. There is talk now of a shared office building to headquarter both churches, and with both churches, with their ethnic divisions, with their language barriers, were nonetheless learned to work together and be a reconciled church of Jesus Christ. So wherever we look, there are moments of territorialism and power struggle and doctrinal, unnecessary doctrinal division, but there are also glimmering moments where love conquers each one of these human desires to dominate. Where does Wooden Hills stand in this? At some point, we've got to bring the question home to us. And I think we can safely say that from the beginning, Woodland Hills in Greg Boyd has had a passion to be about reconciling the churches. The day Greg started this church, let, let, let's just in Greg see what we're dealing with. A former Catholic altar boy who was a former Assemblies of God pastor who was credentialed as a minister in the Church of Disciples of Christ who was at that time attending a missionary alliance church who pastored and planted a BGC church. Five congregations were reconciled just because Greg existed on this planet. Greg is uh, about reconciliation. And the church, as it's grown, has come to adopt this principle, this vision of Jesus of unity with the wider body as a central piece of its vision. To refer to the vision statement, the underlined portion really captures this particular piece of the vision of Jesus' church that we are committed as a church to working hand-in-hand hand with other expressions of the body of Christ. It's right there, center piece of our vision statement. It's captured as well in our value number seven of our, of our values list, which says we covenant to be a people who are one with the body of Christ. We are part of the one church in this region and are called by God to always function as a team player. Assisting other churches has the same kingdom value as assisting our own. It was a strong statement. Reconciliation across racial, gender, economic, and other lines that divide God's people are an essential part of affirming the unity of the body of Christ. Therefore, we will actively pursue this until the Lord returns. Amen. It's one thing to put a vision statement on a piece of paper. It's another thing to actually see that vision being lived out and done in the life of a church. When I wanted to include in this sermon a brief report on how we're doing, on living out this vision and this value, I knew the person to turn to uh, initially was Chuck Fenrick. 
Chuck is our networking pastor. Chuck lives, eats, and breathes relationship with the wider body 24-7. That's his passion. I think more than any other person I know, Chuck has, knows more Christian leaders and has been in more churches than any other living human being. And so Chuck gave me a list of some of the things that are showing significant advance just in the Twin Cities area of the churches pulling together. Let me just mention a few things. Things that are behind the scenes you often wouldn't know about, uh, but bridge building and wall smashing going on in, in very interesting places. Once a month now, Twin Cities pastors gather, St. Paul pastors, gather to the multi-ethnic St. Paul prayer gathering. It's held at River of Life Church, an inner city African-American church, and it brings together African-American, Asian, and white pastors to fellowship and to pray together for the church of the Twin City area. Chuck Fenrick, along with Phil Friesen, another member of our body, were very instrumental last May in the Ethnic America Workers Convention. It brought together over 1,200 people from 31 states and 37 different denominations to ask this question. How can we reach out to the immigrant and refugee populations that God has brought to our shores? So many times we think about missions as going somewhere and neglecting the half million people in our city that uh, are brought here by God and that are needing a touch of the gospel. And that group got together to ask the question, how can we not as separate organs, but as the unified body of Christ, bring our resources together to touch immigrant populations for Jesus Christ? In the outreach area, there's a monthly meeting of missions pastors. Both Steve Schmidt and Keith LeMay are a part of uh, this, this uh, group, Twin Cities Missions Pastors, asking the question, how can we utilize resources together to advance the kingdom of God in our area? In the youth area, because if we get this vision but our next generation doesn't, it's lost. Our vision has to pass on to our youth in this regard. In our youth department right now, under Dennis Luce's leadership, is meeting once a month for a Sunday celebration and praise time at Living Word Church, a predominantly African-American church, and together, the youth pastor there, Laurel Bunker, with our youth pastor, Dennis Luce, has opened this up to other congregations of youth ministries, and a number of youth groups are coming together now, worshiping and fellowshipping together. Isn't that ecumenical, though, Paul? It is. It's ecumenical. It is. It's a little careful. dangerous. I'll grant you that. We are also, as a church, this is an interesting relationship that we're having with Open Door, which has always been a, a close sister church, not in our denomination, Missionary Alliance, but nonetheless kingdom-centered and vision-centered like we. And just recently, our event team, led by Lori Peterson, associate uh, pastor here, went and actually served Open Door by putting on their volunteer appreciation banquet so that their people didn't have to do it. And they're coming to return that favor to us this spring. And so a very service, sort of servant heart attitude relationship developing with Open Door. And finally, the Growing in the Spirit campaign was all about asking the question, if we're going to be spending resources on building out our building over here, how do we at the very same moment, in fact, even prior to that, ask the question, what building needs might other churches have? In St. Paul, we found five churches, smaller churches that couldn't afford renovation projects and so committed to that. In Minneapolis, how can we partner with Ephraim Smith and partnering with the sanctuary church plant there? And finally, to the outermost parts of the earth, that finer piece of our vision statement. And this is maybe to add the rest of the story to the Cambodian uh, story that I, I mentioned a minute ago. As that Cambodian and Vietnamese church are coming together and planting a, an office building to symbolize the unity of their two churches now, 
because the, the Vietnamese refugee population uh, is, is without funds, it's just been found that since uh, Greg was at, at, uh, over there on his trip, we as Woodland Hills are going to be able to resource their half of the church building. Uh, we were going to build a hospital, as you know, and for political reasons, Greg found out that's not going to be feasible. But half of that money that was going to be designated for the hospital will now serve as the Vietnamese church's half of the funding for this joint venture. So we are literally, as a Woodland Hills congregation, participating in reconciling two churches on the other side of this planet. Hallelujah. Praise Amen. God. Well, we can't afford, though, to sit back and pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we've done all we can do. Because here's what's at stake in the kingdom, really. Everything is at stake. It's interesting when you look back and you see Jesus here on earth launching his kingdom and casting the vision for people to love one another in such a radical way that they're united like the Trinity. And the whole world looks at him and says, I know Jesus is real. And I am so grieved when I look at what happened in the name of Jesus in the centuries that follow. Christians killing one another, six million out of 16 million. That was not the vision for the body of Christ. And today, when we spend our time arguing about these things, when we sit back and say, we've got to work out this pre- or post-tribulation thing, we've got to figure this out, there's people out on the streets who are dying alone. When we argue about who gets ordained and how and when and why, there's people with great need. There's people the victims of crime and racism. When we argue about which mode of baptism is okay, which one gets you in, the alcoholism and the drug addiction problems continue to go unchecked. When we spend years and years arguing whether God knows the future exhaustively, there's children growing up with no fathers and sometimes with no mothers. When we talk about whether the body of Christ is really present in communion or only figuratively, when we spend time on that, on that, we don't have time to devote to people whose marriages are broken, whose families are broken, who are struggling through divorce, who feel alone. When we spend time making lists of swear words, like Jiminy Cricket, the prostitutes continue to hit the streets as broken and alone and drug-addicted people who just long to be loved we cannot let this be the best the church can do. If we're going to sit and worry about whether redeeming love down the street is doing better than us, whether they're stealing our sheep, whether a new church is going to be planted over here that'll take some of our resources, the fact is that your neighbors and my neighbors are not getting the love of Jesus. We cannot afford to spend our time on these things. I have this fear that if an alien came today to visit the church in America, and maybe one of you are, that they would have no idea that the vision that Jesus gave the church was to love one another. I'm afraid that the alien would have no idea that there really is just one church with different expressions around the city and around the world. I'm afraid they would just see that there's lots of different churches with not much in common who decide to split every time they disagree over the color of the carpeting or which hymn book. And what they would think is that our words are really, 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 really important 
but our actions are not so important. And to that I say, Jiminy Cricket, can we not do any better than this? <laughs> so this is not an easy deal to say, okay, go out and do these three things. Here's your application points. Certainly all of us need to get outside our box a little bit. And for some of you raised in a church like I was, this can be terrifying stuff. How can we partner with people who have a different view of the end times or communion or baptism? But you know what? If Jesus wanted us to be that black and white on things, the Bible would be that black and white on things. Amen. And the Bible is black and white on just a couple of things. And one of those is that Jesus needs to be at the center. And one of those is not which mode of baptism or which communion or which view of the end times. The reason there's different views is because the Bible is gray on these things. And so we choose to partner with other people who say, Jesus is the center, that's the thing we know for sure. And so all of us individually, as well as all of us corporately, need to learn to live this vision out. After the service last night, someone came to me and she said, I, I really am reaching out at work and trying to meet people and share the love of Christ with them. And I just met another Christian who's also in my office, and I was so excited we could partner together. And she said, but then she came and said that you only really were a follower of Jesus if you speak in tongues. And see, isn't this a work of Satan? Because now those two can go in the corner and argue and fight about whether you have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. And meanwhile, the 10, 20, 30 people working in the office, number one, don't hear about the love of Christ, and number two, see people in dissension over something that to them does not even make sense. We cannot afford to let these Amen. things take us off track. Amen. Amen. And so I told her that regardless of anything that goes on, her role is to love this woman and not engage in the argument, continue to love her co-workers and love this woman and never let any kind of dissension between members of the body of Christ be showed out through that office building. Because that's what Satan wants. And so for each of us today, our task is, yes, number one, when there's opportunities at Woodland Hills to reach out across the divide, to reach out to other manifestations of the body of Christ, let's do that. But the second thing is, in our neighborhoods and in our schools and our places of work, we have to make sure that we let the center be the center, that we as individuals are living out a centered set life, that Jesus is at the center, and that we're not going to argue about whether our pastor is a heretic, because that's a waste of time. We're going to decide to love people who differ from us in their faith within Christianity and love people outside the body of Christ with a love that only Jesus can bring us and with a unity that can only come as Jesus' prayer in John 17 is answered through the power of the Spirit, Amen. that we would be one as the loving triune God is one so that all people would look inside the church and say, Jesus must be real. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for that as we close this morning. God, I pray for each person sitting out here at Woodland Hills this morning that they would be a messenger of your love and your grace. And sometimes, God, it's harder to love people in the kingdom. It is. But I just pray that you would give us a special grace to reach across denominational and church lines and love people who disagree on the minor points, but who agree that the center is Jesus, so that we might partner together in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, to love people who don't know Jesus, to model a different kind of unity, to give people a compelling vision, to advance your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven.
And Father, we know we can only do that through your power. And so we open ourselves up this morning and say, empower us. Speak in us and through us. Make us channels of your love and blessing and help us never, ever to forget that we don't have a black and white truth about all these little issues, but what we have is the lover and the creator of the universe at our center and that that is all we need to reach out with love across the great divide. Amen. We pray these things in the name of your powerful son, Jesus. Amen. 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 If you need prayer, there'll be ministers at the front. And if you want to know more about Jesus, you can step over to the table to your left. Thank you and have a great day.